This is MIT Technology Review. It's true that I was there when robots learned to run. That's a robot walking by. Is it? Yeah, we can go over there later. There, there's the robot right there. Oh, well, hello. <laughs> That's Mark Raybert and his running robots. He's the founder and chairman of Boston Dynamics, a company spun out of MIT that builds agile and highly dynamic robots. You might have seen his early videos on YouTube, from big dog robots training in the forest to those stair-climbing robots for the military. Or, more recently, the headless humanoid robot Atlas, or Spot the Robot Dog, which can open doors and go lie down to recharge itself. It's used by SpaceX and others to do work in places that humans can't. These days, Raybert is building what he describes as a kind of Bell Labs for robotics, an AI institute that aims to make progress on things like getting large language models to connect up with the physical functions of a robot. I'm Jennifer Strong, and this is I Was There When, an oral history project featuring the stories of breakthroughs and watershed moments in AI and computing, as told by those who witnessed them. This episode, we meet the man who taught robots to run as he gives us a tour of his new research lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. So when I was a still a graduate student, I went to a conference on legged locomotion. It was mostly focused on animals and all kinds of scientists who study animals. But there was one presentation by a roboticist who showed a robot that had six legs and moved very slowly and was hugging the ground all the time. And I looked at that robot and thought, wow, that's all wrong. People fly through the air, they bounce on their legs. They're not, they don't have three legs on the ground as a minimum. They sometimes don't have any legs on the ground. So that motivated me to go in the opposite direction. And in the early versions of my lab, I made a robot that had just one leg and bounced like a pogo stick. And it had to balance itself. It had to manage all the energy of bouncing and collision with the ground and those things. And I think that set me and, and the people I've worked with on a course to look at more dynamic kind of robots. You know, my father was a frustrated accountant. He wanted to be an aerospace engineer, and his mother thought that that sounded like being a grease monkey. But the result was that our house was always full of tools and uh, equipment and projects that he was building. So anyway, I've always been a builder, and I don't think things have changed that much, even though most of the building doesn't happen with my hands anymore. I really loved being a professor. I had a, a lab that did interesting work. Uh, later on, I'll show you the prototypes of robots that we built back in, back in that time. Uh, but one time, we decided to take the robots out to Hollywood for a movie set. We had them in a movie called Rising Sun, which was a big movie. It had uh, Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes in it. And we found how hard it was to take a laboratory robot and make it work in the real world. Nothing worked right. I could tell you about the grassy knoll scene. But by the end of the week, we got something working. And you can see it if you watch the movie. 
But it got us thinking about the difference between working in a lab where you had all these advanced students helping you, everything was under your control, as opposed to going out in the world. And so part of the result of that thinking was deciding to start a company that could uh, work on you know, more real-world products and applications. And that was, the, that was really the birth of Boston Dynamics. You know, the, the Big Dog Project was really a milestone for us in robotics. And I think the place it got to be a milestone was it started working well enough. You know, we started out with this ambitious plan of making a robot that could go out in any kind of terrain. And there was a point where it started to work well enough that I looked at it and said, wow, we haven't solved everything, but you could imagine there was light at the end of the tunnel. You could imagine if you solved a set of problems that this thing could actually be out in the world and be useful. I mean, one of the signs of that is when the robot, when, when we were done uh, with an experiment out in the woods, we didn't have to carry the robot up the hill. The robot walked back up the hill by itself. That was kind of exciting yeah. for us. Up to that point, it was like kicking the can down the road. You'd have some interesting technical idea or question, you'd work on it, you'd make something a little better. But there was no concept of uh, getting to the point where the thing could actually come together and be useful. And I think that, you know, the spot robots that uh, Boston Dynamics is making now are the, you know, several generations, many generations later from Big Dog. But Spot is a quadruped, four-legged robot. There's about a thousand of them out there in the world, uh, some being used by universities for research, about a hundred universities, and then some of them are used by companies to do uh, inspection of their factories or their refineries or places like that where there's a lot of equipment that needs to be maintained and, and checked up on. The next big step is to make robots smarter. Right now, robots have physical skills, like you can see doing parkour and jumping and doing all that kind of thing. They have lots of great sensing that's been advancing very quickly, but they're still pretty stupid, and especially compared to people. You know, I could tell you where the bathroom is here, right? I'd say, well, go down that hallway, turn left, and then go over. And you wouldn't need a map of the space. Things that were obstacles would be obvious to you. And if I told you, I could give you a more specific plan of how to, you know, put something together, and you could probably do it with very simple instructions. Right now, it takes a whole team of programmers a fair amount of time to get the robots to do anything interesting at all. Uh, so I think that's the next frontier. That's why the, the AI Institute exists. We're going to try and combine the physicality of robots with more cognitive function and generalization. You know, when you know how to solve this problem or when you know how to do this task, you can do other similar tasks without needing a whole bunch of additional training or experience. After the break, robot dogs that dance, and we visit a collection of robot prototypes at Boston Dynamics AI Institute. You can find links to photos of these robots and to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Brian Bryson, Director of Event Content and Experiences here at MIT Technology Review. I'm popping into this podcast to invite you to our upcoming AI conference, MTech Digital. 
Mtech Digital is MIT Technology Review's executive briefing on artificial intelligence, its implementation, and impact on business and society. If you're tasked with integrating AI into customer offerings or using AI to streamline operations, this is your once-a-year opportunity to meet and network with the peers and leaders on the cutting edge of AI. Learn more about this exclusive event at mtechdigital.com. So I can show you the old robots from sure. 30 or 40 years ago. So I told you about the uh, six-legged slow-moving robot. This was the opposite. It, you can see it's got one leg and then a body. And the way this works, it can't stand still. It can only bounce and balance itself. Two people usually hold it and get it started, and then it goes around. And then someone steers it, so it tells it to go this direction or that direction. There's a computer. There's gyroscopes. The gyroscopes aren't there anymore. So we got this working in about 1983 when I was at Carnegie Mellon University. And we did an evolution of these robots. The one over there is a four-legged robot that only could run. And in those days, we didn't integrate the computers. In fact, this thing had a giant computer in the next room. It had a hydraulic pump, which weighs about 200 pounds, that was in the next room. And so we had hoses and wires that would go to the robot. And someone, usually a student, would hold those, run down the hall with the robot while the robot's running. So this is like the great-grandfather to Big Dog and maybe the great-great-grandfather to Spot. But before we even got that first one-legged robot working, we had to make an, a simpler version. So we made uh, this guy. But here we have it attached to this contraption that simplified the problem. So it's actually only operating in a plane, or a, it's actually the surface of a sphere, which you know restricts the degrees of freedom that makes the problem easier. You can learn about the problem in the easier case, and then once you do that, it's easier to go to the more complicated case. So, you know, part of the development process of this kind of technology or science or whatever you want to call it is coming up with ways of making it easier so you can make progress, and then you can make bigger progress. There's a lab down at this end, which we'll go to. And on our way, we pass an MIT student who's been working with one of Raybert's robotic dogs on creating its own self-portrait. And it's remarkably well done. But even better is the portrait the robot made of his researcher. <laughs> this is amazing. Then we enter the spot lab and a room full of these robots. And we have 20 spot robots along with their charging stations so they, when they run out of juice, they can go over there and squat down and charge themselves. People come in and give uh, training. We've been working on dancing. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. <laughs> is there anybody downstairs? We have the downstairs okay. space, but that's been a consideration uh, that the robots marching around kind of makes some noise. But you see, we have a rubber pad down. Do you want to drive the robot? Ooh, yes, please. It's sort of really a duet, because the robot has its own ability to control itself. The robot has uh, cameras in the front, both sides and the back, and it uses them to detect obstacles or things to step on. So when it climbs over this box, it can adjust its uh, foot placements and according to what the altitude of the terrain is and things like that. So the robot's showing off when it's doing this. We should go down there. <laughs> the 
two joysticks here. Um, this one makes it go forward, backward, left and right. And I mean like stepping left and right, like kind of strafing. David Servic is a research scientist and he shows me how it works. Whereas this other joystick will make it actually turn. So it's sort of like video game controls and depending on how many video games you play, you might find it pretty intuitive or not. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Whoop. But I'm not very good. So or... make it come this way. Remember, you have to put your head in the, in the body of the robots. Another feature is you can actually just touch on the screen. <laughs> Guessing how many video games I play yet? <laughs> Tap where you want it ah, to go, and okay. it, will, it will walk there. So you also have two views here. One is like seeing uh -huh. through the front of the robot through its own eyes. And this is a reconstructed view of what it would look like if you were floating above the robot looking down at it. So here, click there. Okay. For decades, Raybert has looked to biology for inspiration on how robots might behave. And it's interesting to hear him talk about intelligence as just one more example of that. And recently, he was also inspired by an email he received from someone with disabilities who misses hiking in the woods. And they say, boy, I'd really like to go on a hike in the woods. You know, can you make something that can do that? So that's the concept of a, a kind of a walking wheelchair that could go on a hike in a trail someday. And we walk through a gallery of some other big ideas he's hoping to make progress on. Here's the kind of thing we would like to be able to do. Rather than program the robot to do work on that assembly line, we'd like to tell the robot, see that guy over there? Watch what he's doing. Figure out how to do it yourself, and then do it. Hmm. Watch, understand, do, we're calling that project. And I think that's you know, a different paradigm than how things work now, where you have people analyzing the task, breaking it down, programming it. He'd also like to see assistive robots that could help take care of older adults. And he says he was inspired by taking care of his aunt. We had two full-time people, strangers, taking care of her. And she hated that, you know? Yeah. And she, of course, she didn't want me to take care of her either. So here's a, you know, a concept someday where robots will be able to help people in and out of bed, get dressed. This is still a ways off, you know, the, the safety needed in the robot. This combination of safety and strength is really uh, a challenge, but I think, you know, I think we could get there. You know, obviously we want to combine the physicality along with the, uh, the social interaction, but we would like to make it so that you, you know, you could talk to the robot rather than have to use a tablet or keyboard. I mean, even you struggled with our, key, with our tablet a little yeah, exactly. bit, right? <laughs> and it only gets, you know, more difficult. Yeah. Getting the large language models to connect up with the physical functions is still a challenge, and I think it's one of the things we might be able to make some progress with. This project was produced by me with Anthony Green and Emma Silicons. We're edited by Matt Honan, and our mix engineer is Garrett Lang, with original music by Garrett Lang and Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.